Well, if you guys have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Last week we were able to look at John 1, 14 through 18, where we beheld the glory of Jesus Christ. That he is full of grace and truth. Grace abounding upon grace. Grace unending. We talked about at the end of the message how beholding the glory of Jesus is our highest priority. That is what saves us. That is what sanctifies us. That is what we need. We need to behold the glory of Jesus. And the apex of that glory is the cross. God's glory is immensely important. That's why we sang songs like, Take Us Deeper, Lord, into the glories of Calvary. We sang songs about the glory of the cross. There are so many places we can turn in God's word to see his glory on display. But this morning, since it is Palm Sunday, I want to see the glory of Jesus Christ in the triumphal entry. I want to see the many facets of the triumphal entry, kind of like a diamond. Um, look at the event and twist it and turn it and see all of the many ways in which Jesus displays himself as glorious. And I pray that at the end of this message, we would be able to see together Jesus is amazing. A new and a fresh, we would be able to see and be blown away. Jesus is amazing. And the implications for our own lives. So it's Palm Sunday today. It's the beginning of what we refer to as the Passion Week. Anybody remember where we get that term from? It comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, the NASB translates it to these. He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The old King James Version says, to whom he also showed, and it's technically not showed in the old King James, it's shewed, to those he also shewed himself alive after his passion. That's where we get the word passion for Passion Week. It is a week that is representative of the suffering of Jesus Christ. It is an eight-day week, praise the Lord. It starts on Sunday, the uh, triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, and it ends on Easter Sunday. So it's not a seven-day week, it's an eight-day week. And by God's grace, that is the culmination of our salvation on that last Sunday. Jesus died. History tells us this, and this is very, very accurate. Jesus died on April 3rd, 33 A.D., There are really only two guesses, and they're not really guesses. There's two possibilities as to when Jesus died, either uh, 33 A.D. or 30 A.D. And all of the history and all of the um, textual evidence that we have supports his death at 33 A.D., April 3rd. So, exactly 1,982 years ago, this Friday, Jesus was hanging on a cross. It's going to be very special to celebrate that um, together on Good Friday in a couple days. But here in our text this morning, and we're going to be bouncing around, we're going to see the the triumphal entry. And so this is 1,982 years ago. Today, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And in doing so, we see amazing evidence of his deity, of his amazing nature and character. Each of the gospel writers, each of the four gospels, spend about 40% of their gospel dealing with the Passion Week. Almost half of the gospels deal with the Passion Week. Um, That should tell us the importance of this week. You have 33 years, probably a little bit more, of Jesus' whole life. You see a little bit of his early life. You see his ministry, his public ministry, but 
his three and a half year public ministry on earth takes up just a segment, just a portion of the gospel records. And then 40% deals with just one week, the last week of Jesus's earthly life. It's amazing. Before his death, we have 40% dealing with this issue. There are many reasons why there are four gospels, four accounts. Um, Why don't we just have one? Why do we have four different accounts? Many different reasons, but the main one for us today is we live in in a time, in a culture where History should be questioned. It can be, and it should be questioned. It's almost virtuous to doubt what the history books are telling us. And so when it comes to the Bible, a lot of people doubt its historicity, if you will. They doubt that it is historically accurate. If there's anyone who cannot play fast and loose with history, it's Bible-believing Christians because the evidence of our faith is found here. It's given the basis of, of our belief is given here in a book That is so, so old. History itself is old, right? History goes far, far back. And your faith, my faith, our eternal destiny hangs on whether the authors of Scripture got it right, got their facts right. Maybe they got something that Jesus said wrong. And therefore, we're believing an an incorrect message, an erroneous message. Brings me back to the question, why four Gospels? You remember that the biblical criteria in Deuteronomy... If you want to state the fact of a matter, is in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So there you go. You have three eyewitness accounts in the synoptic gospels. You have three people that are doing eyewitness work. Matthew was an eyewitness. He was a disciple. Mark's gospel is written from Peter's perspective. So Peter was an eyewitness. And then Luke tells us that he goes around to eyewitnesses and investigates and compiles a gospel account. And then John, the fourth gospel, not a synoptic gospel, but the gospel of John as we're going through it, he was an eyewitness as well. So we have four eyewitness testimonies that would confirm that these things are all true. I say all this to to plead with you. Learn the Passion Week. With four different accounts, we can compile and harmonize these accounts. We're going to do a little bit of it this morning together. But we can harmonize the four Gospels in such a way that we can see very clearly what took place in that week. So learn the Passion Week. It is vital to our faith. It is vital to our affections for Jesus. It's an amazing week. Learn the Passion Week. So we're going to jump into Luke 13 to learn of the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. We know Palm Sunday. We know Jesus riding in on a donkey, but to get the full grasp of what is going on, we have to go backwards to how Jesus got here to this place, to the triumphal entry. What we're going to do this morning is trace Jesus' steps leading up to Palm Sunday, and then we'll see how they all display the glory of Jesus Christ. So just two main sections this morning. Number one, we're going to look at the background to the event of the triumphal entry. We're going to just look at the background to the events of the triumphal entry. And then number two, we're going to look at the triumphal entry itself, the event itself. We'll split it up into those sections. And it will get a little historical, but I hope that it will be encouraging by the time we wrap it all up together this morning. Luke chapter 13. We have to start here. Jesus is in Perea. He's in an area that's across the Jordan River. So we've got Jerusalem. If you're looking from Jerusalem, if you're standing in Jerusalem and you're looking east, if you want to look at your maps in the back of your Bible, you can do this. If you're looking east... From Jerusalem, you are going to see the Kidron Valley. There's a big, deep valley. 
And then the valley is going to come up after you pass by the Kidron Valley. You're going to see the Mount of Olives. And that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. You'll pass through the Garden of Gethsemane. You'll walk up the Mount of Olives. And then you'll crest over the Mount of Olives. There's a little city there called Bethany. And if you keep going through Bethany, you're going to hit a little road that's going to take you to a big road. And that road will lead you to Jericho. And then Jericho will lead you out. If you keep traveling that road, it'll take you to the Jordan River. And then if you cross over the Jordan River, you are in an area known as either Perea or the Transjordan area. So Jesus, in Luke 13, is over in Perea. He's in that Transjordan area. And he's there because his life is being threatened. Everybody wants him dead, and not everybody, but most everybody wants him dead, and specifically those who have the power to kill him want him dead. And so he's, he's over in Perea teaching, and verse 31, we'll pick it up here to give us the, the background of what's going to happen with the triumphal entry. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached Jesus, saying to him, so this is Luke 13, 31, go away from here, leave here, because Herod wants to kill you. Now, this isn't true. Herod didn't want to kill him. This is a lie. This is a ploy. The Pharisees want to get Jesus closer to their home turf so that they can what? They can kill him. They want to take him. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. He's already pretty much a fugitive here. It's going to become even more clear that he starts running for his life. Um, and it would seem like everything's out of control, but it's not. But here, they... They establish this ploy. They want Jesus to leave so that they can arrest him and kill him. But he doesn't buy into it. He says in verse 32, Go, tell that fox, tell King Herod, who's a fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will reach my goal. Jesus is saying, I have a specific goal. I know the time it will take. I have the predestined day that it's going to happen. I'm not leaving right now. But I will go, and it will be on my timetable. Verse 33, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. This is kind of tongue-in-cheek. He's saying to the Pharisees, Your prophets you killed in your holy city. So I am going to go to Jerusalem, and you are going to kill me, but not yet. Then he says this, verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left desolate to you, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus says, I'm not going to Jerusalem yet, but when I go to Jerusalem, when I travel there, you are going to see me coming into Jerusalem and you will hear these words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's prophesying here. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm not going to Jerusalem yet, but the next time I step foot in Jerusalem, you are going to hear those words. You see those words in your Bible, probably in verse 35. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're all capital. That means it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Let's turn to that um, Old Testament passage. It's in Psalm 118. Turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, a messianic psalm, a psalm that is being quoted by Jesus here, and there's a reason why. Verse 26 is the quotation here. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Psalm 118 is a psalm that was written um, to instruct Israel how to receive their Messiah. Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, this is how you receive him. 
This is what you say. This is what you do. This is the, the glory of that day, the momentum of that day leading up to it. This is what's going to happen. And this is how you are supposed to receive your Messiah. You know this passage probably better than you think you know. For instance, um, let me start a verse in this passage. This is the day the Lord has made. You finish it. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So we think of that as this day or that day. Um, hey, this is a happy day. And totally fine if you want to think that. I don't think that's what the passage is a reference to. The passage is a reference to that day when Jesus came, the, the day that the Messiah would be presented to Israel. That's the day that the Lord has made. He has made it from all of eternity past. He spoke that day into existence, as it were, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there would be a day that would come when the seed of the woman would crush the serpent and the Messiah is going to do that. And so this is the day that all creation is longed for. That's why Jesus, by the way, is going to say to the Pharisees, you remember at the triumphal entry, um, the Pharisees say, hey, tell all of your disciples to stop praising you. And he says, no, because even if they stop, first of all, they're speaking truth, but even if they stop, the rocks are going to cry out. Why? Because this is the day the Lord has made and we're going to rejoice. And if my disciples don't rejoice... The whole earth, creation is going to rejoice. This is the day. If you look at um, verse 25, O Lord, O Yahweh, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Somebody tell me what that word, do save, what that, what's that Hebrew word? Hosanna, Hoshanah. That's the word that they are crying out, the the. Israelites that are standing on the Mount of Olives when Jesus crests over the Mount, they're standing there saying, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're standing there saying, verse 25, Hosanna, do save us. They knew Messiah's coming. Our King is coming. Back in Luke 13, when Jesus says, the next time I show up into Jerusalem, they're going to say those words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you and I had been there, along with the Pharisees and the other disciples, we would have said, there's no way that's going to happen. You're a wanted man. The religious leaders want to kill you. You have to hide. You're in Perea right now. You can't even show your face in Jerusalem. There's no way. Jesus, this is not going to happen. And you're a little off your rocker right now. But you and I both know that it does happen. We have to figure out how it happened. A lot of people think the triumphal entry happened by chance, kind of like Jesus crested over the Mount of Olives sitting on a donkey and, oh, wow, look, there's a crowd here. Hey, this is great. Thanks for coming out to my party. Jesus made the triumphal entry happen. And I want you to see that this morning in Scripture. Jesus made it happen. He didn't wonder. He didn't guess. He didn't hope. He made it happen. To know this, to see this, we have to start in John 11. John 11 the Passion Week really gets kicked off with the raising of Lazarus. That's really the, the beginning of the Passion Week. It's a couple of weeks before the actual literal Passion Week, but we have to have John 11 in our mind. Again, Jesus is in Perea, and a man comes from Bethany and says, The man who you love is sick. Lazarus is sick. Come back. Heal him, please. You remember what Thomas said, right? Remember Thomas says, okay, let's go with you and we will die with you. If we show our face, even in Bethany, which is just a mile and a little bit outside of Jerusalem, if we show our faith, face even in Bethany, we're going to be killed. 
Jesus, people want you dead. Don't go back. And Jesus says, we're going to stay in Perea until it's time to go raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus goes on the fourth day to raise Lazarus on, uh, on that fourth day from the dead. Why the fourth day? This is so huge. Um, number one, let me give you a couple reasons why Jesus waited until the fourth day for Lazarus to be raised from the dead, to go raise him. He could have healed him, uh, not let him die. He could have let him die, but then raised him on the first day or the second day or the third day. Why the fourth day? Why wait? Let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, he wanted to make sure that Jesus was, or that Lazarus was good and dead. Um, there was, there's a custom in, in um, Jewish customs, there's a, a thought that the spirit or the soul of the person who has died hovers over their body for three days. Um, they get this from a couple Old Testament passages where people were, um, had died and then were raised to life. And so there's this, this kind of idea in their mind that maybe God will raise them from the dead. So the spirit's hovering over their body, waiting to see if God's going to. And when God doesn't, after three days, the spirit says, we're done. This guy's officially dead. He's not mostly dead. He is dead, dead. Number two, um, you have a period of mourning in the Jewish culture, uh, it's basically a week, a month, and a year of mourning. But that first week when someone has died and, and when, when that person passes away, that's counted as the first day. And you have a seven-day period of mourning. And in that day, it's kind of like everybody getting together and, and sharing stories and, and encouraging their loved ones and uh, ministering to each other. In that week, if you can only show up to one day, you show up to the fourth day. And here's why. For three days, the body that has died is being prepared for burial for three whole days. Spices, ointments, wrappings, all these different things. On the fourth day, that body is placed into the tomb and the tomb is sealed. Not necessarily for protection, more just for the stench of the decaying body. So three days, the body is still there, visibly in sight, though it's being wrapped, it's being um, anointed and all those different things. But the fourth, the fourth day, that body is placed into the tomb, the final resting place, and you no longer see the body. So the fourth day is the day of greatest mourning, greatest weeping. The most people would be there. So Jesus is planning and preparing for a glorious event to take place with the most people available to watch it. Jesus is absolutely in control. He doesn't just happen to show up on the fourth day. Oh, look, there's all these many people. Jesus knew exactly how long it would take him to get back to Bethany. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And he did it for the purpose of showing forth the glory of God. That's specifically what he says. If you go to John 11, verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer. So it was probably a, a day journey to get to him, to tell him, and then he stays two days, and then he takes a day journey to get back. Why is he doing this? He says in verse 14, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. I want you to believe, and you are going to believe by seeing my glory. Go to verse 38. Jesus, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. This is the fourth day. That's why we stick him in the tomb, and we seal it. He's been dead four days. 
And then Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? I have purposed and planned all of this so that you will see the glory of God on display in me raising Lazarus from the dead. So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around it, I said so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Apparently dead people are a little bit deaf, so he has to speak with a loud voice. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And so Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Take the wrapping off of his face or else we're going to have to do this whole thing again. He's going to suffocate in his wrappings. It's for the glory of God that Jesus is doing this. What is the effect of this? Turn to verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus. The day there is the Pharisees and the Sadducees, bitter enemies. They hate each other, but now they hate Jesus even more. So they'll conspire together. They'll work together because they want Jesus dead. From that day on, they together planned. It didn't, doesn't mean that they hadn't planned beforehand by themselves, but now they're working as a team. The Pharisees hated Jesus. The Sadducees hated Jesus. They both wanted him dead. And now they together say, let's kill him. Let's kill him. He's a fugitive. Therefore, verse 54, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. But he went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. So John very clearly tells us, raises, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now he's a fugitive because everybody wants him dead. The Pharisees and Sadducees are working together to kill him. So Jesus runs away. Verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, that we're here for Passover, and the, the question on everybody's lips is, what do you think? Will he come to the feast at all? What do you think? Is Jesus going to be here? We know that he left. We know that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Everybody's hearing of that. It's just going throughout the whole uh, country of Israel, the whole land of Israel. Even in verse 9 of chapter 12, there is a crowd of Jews that want to see Jesus, but not really. They want to see Lazarus. They know somebody's been raised from the dead. So they go to Passover, not to keep the Passover. They go to Passover because they want to see a dead man raised to life. Israel, on a whole, is absolutely blown up over this issue. They are just blown away by Jesus, and then they know that he leaves. They know that he goes to Ephraim, and so their question is, I wonder if he's going to come. I wonder if he's going to make it out here, because we know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees want him dead. I wonder if he'll show his face. John leaves the story after the raising of Lazarus, with Jesus in Ephraim. He leaves us there. In verse 57, he leaves us with the chief priests and the Pharisees, Sadducees and the Pharisees, giving orders that if anyone knew where he was, he would report it so that they might seize him. Um, We have historical evidence that back in that day, they would kind of, like what we have in post offices where we have wanted posters, they would do that with criminals and with people that they wanted. So placards of Jesus' face are probably um, on walls and and in different cities. He is a wanted man. So he leaves to Ephraim, and John 
leaves us there with him in Ephraim, and Luke picks up the story. So turn back to Luke, chapter 17. Luke picks up the story in Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 11, Jesus is in Ephraim, and he is going to make his way now. It's been a, it's been a couple weeks. Um, Lazarus is going to be raised, and it's been a couple days, and it's going to be a couple more weeks until Jesus makes it to the triumphal entry. And it says this in my Bible, while, this is Luke 17, 11, while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem from Ephraim, which Ephraim, so Jerusalem, um, Ephraim is just about 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem. 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And, and my Bible says this, when he was going to Jerusalem from Ephraim, you would think 12 miles southeast, that's where you go. It says he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So this is where it's helpful. If you see your map, you know you have Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, Galilee in the north. Commentators don't know what to do with this passage. They, they think it's a misprint. It's, it's wrong, but it's actually perfect in telling us what Jesus is doing. He's in Ephraim, just 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem. All he would have to do if he wants to make it to Jerusalem on an easy road is take 12 miles southeast and he'll just jump right back. But this passage says he goes to Jerusalem through Samaria, through Galilee, and then back down. Why does he do that? We know he does that. We know he passes through Samaria. And as he does all of these things, Matthew and Mark tell us that he's doing miracles. He's teaching. He's drawing a crowd. He goes back up to Galilee, goes back to his hometown, goes back to Nazareth and Capernaum, is bringing people along with him. There's a huge caravan that's following him, that's surrounding him. Why is he doing all of this? Because if he had just jumped on the little tiny road, the 12-mile road that would take him back from Ephraim to Jerusalem, he would have been taken over by all of the bounty hunters that wanted him dead, that were working to try and um, fulfill the, the bounty on his head and bring him back dead or alive to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So if he moves that 12-mile road, he's going to be killed. Matthew 10 tells us that Jesus wants his disciples to be shrewd as serpents and gentle as doves. That's exactly what Jesus is here. Jesus is shrewd as a serpent, gentle as a dove. He's crafty, not in a sinful way, in a very cunning way. This, this is amazing what he does. He knows I'm going to die, but he also knows I have to die on a cross. I have to die on April 3rd, 33 AD to fulfill prophecy. I have to fulfill the Passover. I have to keep that, which is Thursday. I can't die before Thursday of the Passover. I need to enter into Jerusalem. He prophesied in Luke 13, I'm going to enter to the cries of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He needs to make all of these things happen. And so he says, I have to stay alive. How am I going to stay alive? I'm going to go up. I'm going to draw disciples to myself. I'm going to gather followers. This is um, a typical thing that would happen in uh, those days was caravanning together. It would, uh, the more numbers that you have, the less um, people could come and robbers and thieves would take over um, your your livelihood and all of the, the possessions that you have. So you would work and, and walk together and travel together in a caravan. This is why, um, you remember, it, it informs the story of Jesus when he's left behind when he's younger and Mary and Joseph leave without him and they travel for a couple days until they figure out, wait, we don't have the Messiah. We lost the Son of God. I always thought that's just the worst parenting in the world. Like that is just 
awful. Always have your kid in your sight. But it's not awful because they would caravan. And maybe auntie so-and-so and grandma so-and-so, oh, you watch them. We're going to start going out. We're going to find a, a road. We're going to get out of here. And there'd be a huge caravan of hundreds of people. So too, Jesus here is bringing along a caravan of hundreds, if not even thousands of people that are coming with him. And they're all coming with him, going up through Samaria, through Galilee. Then they would cross over. There were two routes that you could take to get between Galilee and and, uh, Judea. And they would take the, the route that would go across the Jordan River and down on the east side of the Jordan River and then cross back over into Jericho. That's where Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. That's where Jesus is going to run into Zacchaeus. Matthew and Mark detail the journey. John doesn't even describe the journey. Luke tells us the beginning of the journey. And so as we kind of harmonize all these things together, we see a beautiful picture of what Jesus is doing. Now turn back to John 12. The journey happens. John 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has, had raised from the dead. Six days before the Passover. Passover is on Thursday, so six days before is Friday. Jesus shows up in Bethany after this long trek that probably took him a couple weeks. Shows up in Bethany on Friday before the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Shows up on Friday. And he stays in Bethany. Now, again, if you are coming west from Jericho, you're going to come to a little road that is an offshoot to go to Bethany, but there's a main road that's going to take you over the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley, into Jerusalem. So Jesus says to all of the disciples, all of the followers that have been hanging with him in this caravan, he says, you know what? I'm going to park it in in Bethany. You go along without me. You go into Jerusalem. Now, what's the question? Remember the question that John posed that everybody's been asking, verse 56 of chapter 11. Do you think he's going to come? Is Jesus going to come to the Passover? Now they have an answer. Yes. He traveled from Ephraim through Samaria, through Galilee, across the Jordan River, down all the way, back across the river, into Jericho, and he's staying at Bethany. So he is coming. The next question is, well, when is he going to be here? You guys are all here. That's the crowd that's been happening in verse 9. The large crowd of Jews that learned he was there. These, these crowds are happening left and right. They want to see, as one professor of mine used to say, Jerusalem at this moment is a Twitter with what's happening with Jesus and with Lazarus. It's before Twitter even came out. So, the first question, is he going to even show up? Yes, he is. I was with him. I was with him. Well, where is he? He's in Bethany. But it's Friday. He's staying in Bethany on Friday. What happens on uh, sundown, at sundown on Friday night for a Jewish person? Sabbath, right? Bethany is outside of the Sabbath zone. Uh, You remember the Pharisees made rules that you could go so far and no further on the Sabbath. They wanted to make sure they weren't breaking the Sabbath of walking and doing work. So they made zones. It wasn't a linear, um, you know, like keep the little pedometer that if you take this many steps, then you're done. And you just kind of walk around. Uh-oh, I, I took all the steps that I was allotted for Sabbath and I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I guess I'm in trouble. Uh, it wasn't that. There were zones that all of Israel had and they were um, like three mile radius. Uh, it was like two and a half mile radius zones. So Jerusalem was a zone And Bethany lies outside of the zone. So if you're staying in Bethany and the sun goes down on Friday night, you're not going to come in to Jerusalem because it's the Sabbath. So that answers the second question. Is Jesus coming? Yes. 
He, he came with us. We were with the crowd with him. He's coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. Okay, where is he? When is he going to be here? That's the answer to question number two. He'll be here on Sunday. He's there Friday. The sun's going down. He's in Bethany. And so he can't move. He can't walk over into Jerusalem on Saturday. So he's coming in on Sunday. He will be here on Sunday. Jesus orchestrated it. He made it happen. When he crests over the Mount of Olives, he's looking at the crowds that he designed to be there. And he made it happen by all of, first, the hubbub around Lazarus being raised. And he did that for a purpose. He did that for a glorious reason. There are so many things. When Jesus does one thing, he's doing a billion things. And here, when he does the raising of Lazarus, he's also getting the ball rolling. He knows when he needs to die. He knows how he needs to die. He knows who's going to kill him. And so he raises Lazarus to get the ball rolling. He moves to Ephraim. He goes up around, takes a long route to get back to Jerusalem, brings all of these followers with him so that he can protect himself, so that he doesn't die on the way to celebrate Passover. And then he stays in Bethany on Friday night and says, Hey, everybody, I'm going to stay here Friday. I'm going to stay here Saturday, and I'll be here first thing on Sunday. He made it happen. And as he crests over the Mount of Olives, he sees the crowd that he purposed and planned and orchestrated to be there. And what are they saying? Let's turn to Mark, Mark chapter 11. That's the background, the background of the triumphal entry. He did a lot to make it happen. Now let's look at the actual event itself. The actual event itself, number two. Mark chapter 11, verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? <laughs> that would be my question. Why are you stealing my ride? Um, if anybody says to you that, this, Um, you say the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. Jesus already prophesied what the disciples are going to say when he crests over, what his followers are going to say, what the crowds are going to say. He's verbatim prophesied what they're going to say. He also prophesies that somebody's going to have a problem with stealing their ride. You and I could have prophesied that. But then he prophesies that immediately after saying the words, the Lord has need of it, that they will give it to you. I wouldn't prophesy that. I would prophesy, and immediately when you say those words, they'll beat you up. Like, they will not let you take their ride. And they went away, verse 4. They found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street. They untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave permission to them. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their coats in the road, And others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields, those palm branches, hence the name Palm Sunday. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, that's verse 25 of Psalm 118. Save now, do save us, Lord. And then Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The exact words that Jesus prophesied would be spoken. You and I, if we had been there in Luke 13, we would have said, yeah, right, you're probably going to die. You're not going to get back into Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to come back to these words. And sure enough, he did. Why are they spreading their coats? They're spreading their coats in the road as a symbol of submission. You can walk all over us. We will obey your every command. They're putting these palm branches, a symbol of a king coming back from a victorious battle. 
What are they saying? They're saying you're our Messiah. What's a Messiah to them? It just means king, anointed one. Uh, you anointed kings back in the day in Old Testament um, Judaism. You, you would, you would uh, anoint somebody to be a king. They say, you are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. Be our king. And yes, he is a king, but not a king in the way that they wanted. Not a king the way that they thought. They thought Jesus was going to come in, conquer Rome, get rid of Rome once and for all. And they'd all be able to celebrate the Passover together with Rome being gone. Think of the Passover. Think of the Passover as a time. Every Jew during Passover in that time is just thinking lofty thoughts of sedition. Um, They're just all wanting, because what is the Passover? It's celebrating God's um, moving in and salvation of the Israelites in Exodus from an oppressive enemy, the Egyptians. So here we have it, an oppressive enemy, Rome. And only God can deliver us. That's why they're saying, save us now. We can't do it. We've tried. Every time we try, we get killed. We get slaughtered. We need a king who can come and who can save They were looking for political salvation, freedom from an oppressive economic system and government. They weren't looking for a king who would save from sin. A king who would destroy the greatest enemy, not Rome. The greatest oppressive enemy, not not a political power, but sin, death. But, sure enough, just as Jesus said, they speak the very words that he had prophesied. There are three amazing things that happened during the triumphal entry. Number one, the manner of the triumphal entry, specifically that Jesus would ride in on a donkey, was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. The manner of the triumphal entry was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, which says, Behold, your king rides in on a donkey. And sure enough, Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. Number two, the exact moment to the day was written in Daniel 9 that there were going to be 483 years between the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem, which was in 445 B.C., to the coming of the Messiah. And you can figure that out to the year and even to the month, and even you can narrow it down to a week. The manner and the moment were prophesied. And the meaning of the triumphal entry in Psalm 118 was prophesied, that Jesus was coming as the king, as Messiah to save. It was all prophesied, and Jesus fulfills these prophecies perfectly. He made it happen. He lived to the triumphal entry, and he lived through the triumphal entry. You can see in verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered, this is Mark 11, verse 11, entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late, and he goes back. He keeps himself alive for a couple more days. He gets himself killed by the things that he is doing, specifically cleansing the temple on Monday and teaching, taking over the temple on Tuesday. Wednesday is a silent day. Thursday, um, because of the preparation done on Wednesday, Thursday is all mapped out, a secret location for the Passover to be held. And we're going to talk about that on Good Friday. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane Thursday night, prays. Thursday night, Friday morning, he is arrested. Six trials later, he is condemned. Friday morning, he is put on a cross. Friday afternoon, he dies on that cross and is buried. None of it could have happened if it hadn't been for Jesus keeping himself alive, getting to the triumphal entry, passing into Jerusalem, safe, sound, and getting to Friday when he would die. So what? 
What's, what's the point of all this? I told you I want to see the glory of Jesus in the triumphal entry. I want you to see it. So let me try and wrap it up by giving you a couple different areas of God's glory that we can see on display just in the triumphal entry and in the background leading up to it. Number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is clearly God. You remember, John is writing to prove to us that Jesus is who he claims to be. He is clearly God. He raises a man from the dead. We can't do that. Only God can do that. And the people said that. The disciples said, this has to be a man who is God, a man sent by God or God himself. And only God could prophesy the events and then fulfill those events perfectly. Only God could do that. Jesus does that in this and so many other different scenarios in the gospel, fulfilling prophecy. Even in the cross, his death, the things he says, the way he dies, it's all fulfilling prophecy. And only God could make that happen. Number two, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He's not only God, but he's king. But I would say it this way. He's king not in any category that the world has for a king. You could say it this way. His character is stunningly beautiful, and it's on display for us here. He taught paradoxes, um, the, the reversal of what it means to be a leader. You want to be great? Be the least. You want to be high and lifted up? Serve. Be the slave of all. He always did that with these crazy paradoxes. He said, be shrewd as serpents, be wise as a serpent, be gentle as a dove. Do both. Do both. He hangs out with Zacchaeus on his way back to the triumphal entry. And in doing so, everybody turns and says, this is a man that's hated by the world, a liar, a cheat. We've talked about him before in our series on idolatry and the idol of money and greed. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house and I'm going to stay with you. Jesus has so many amazing, beautiful categories, but we can't, we can't put our finger on how it all works together. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon titled, The Excellencies of Christ. In it, he references Revelation 5, 5 through 6, where Jesus is described as the lion and the lamb. Paradox. He's king, but not in the way that we would think. And he says this, Jonathan Edwards says, quote, The lion excels in strength. And in the majesty of his appearance and voice, the lamb excels in meekness and patience. The lamb is sacrificed for food and for clothing. But we see that Jesus is in the text compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. There is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same object. And he goes on to list some of those ways in which Jesus' character combines both crazy, uh, seemingly mutually exclusive character qualities. He says, in Jesus we find infinite majesty, yet we find complete humility. In Jesus we find perfect justice, yet boundless grace. We find absolute sovereignty, yet complete submission. We find all sufficiency in Jesus himself and yet entire trust and dependence upon the Father. We see these juxtapositions even here. He is king, but not in the way that people would have wanted or imagined. He's a lowly king coming on the the colt of a donkey. He's a king who reigns by dying. He's a king who does his work to destroy oppressors by being destroyed himself. He's an amazing king. And because of that, number three, Jesus is polarizing. Jesus is polarizing. 
Jesus' extreme characteristics are integrated, are balanced, but they demand an extreme response from all of us. And that's what happens in the Gospels. You either take him at his word and die for him, or you hate his words and try to kill him. You can't say, I'll take him or leave him. You can't say, I I like him, I think he's a good teacher. You either say, he is the son of God, He he is who he claimed to be, or you say, he is a fool and worthy of death. You either crown him as king and surrender to him, or you kill him. There's just no way you can say, he's, he's a cool guy. He's a cool guy. You cannot keep Jesus on the periphery of your life. It won't happen. It won't work. He won't stay there. He's polarizing. Number four, Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. He controls, he plans, he purposes, he ordained, he orchestrated the triumphal entry so that everything that he wanted to happen would happen the exact way that it happened. He did that. And yet he has skin that can be pierced. He's our sovereign God that can be killed. But you can only pierce the skin if he lets you. He's sovereign even in his death. Luke 4 and John 10. Remember in Luke 13, he told the Pharisees, I'm going to come to these words. Nobody would have believed him. Completely in control. I remember in Mark 4 with the the boat being in the storm and Jesus is asleep on a pillow in the boat while a hurricane's happening. It's a beautiful picture. Because he's sovereign, he can sleep. (laughs) I can control this. I have no need to fear. And likewise, you and I have no need to fear. He He is the snoring sovereign. And he is in control of everything that we go through. Number five, Jesus is with us and he is for us. Because he is sovereign, he can direct every um, aspect of our lives, every, every particle of matter. He commands, he directs. There is no such thing as a maverick molecule on its own. And yet some people think of Jesus or think of the Godhead as sitting in heaven, just kind of watching and looking, kind of like if you've ever seen that movie, The Truman Show just kind of saying, let's have some fun with these people. Let's make a storm. Let's do these things. Let's, let's just kind of have fun and see, play with the people we created. The story of Jesus becoming a man says that Jesus is one of us. He came, Emmanuel, God with us. He stepped into time. He's not just looking from afar saying, I hope you can make it. I hope you do well. This looks like a, a tough trial. hope you've prepared for it. Even back to the boat analogy. Jesus doesn't watch us in the middle of a hurricane and say, oh, I hope they can make it. Jesus jumps into the boat with us and goes through the storm and says, fear not, I am with you. He is with us and he is for us. Finally, Jesus, number six, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. There's so many obvious places to go to show this. But what I want to do is, back in Luke 13, when Jesus says, the next time I'm going to come, I'm going to come to the cries of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was weeks before the triumphal entry. Turn to Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, you're going to find a quote that's identical to Luke 13, except it was said on Tuesday of the Passion Week. So weeks before in Luke 13, Jesus said, I'm going to come in to the words of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you and I had been there at that moment, we would have said, ha, yeah, right, that's not going to happen. And it happened. 
maybe you are in a moment in your life where you are struggling to believe that God can make something happen. Maybe he's promised to make something happen. He's promised to bless the way of the righteous. And you're saying, look, where's the blessing? I'm trying to be righteous. There's supposed to be joy and obedience. Where's the, where's the joy? You said you were going to be with me. You said you would never forsake me. Luke 13 tells us when he proclaims a promise, he keeps it. But Matthew 23, look at Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus says, so this is Tuesday of the Passion Week. This is, the, this is Jesus leaving Jerusalem for the last time on his own power because he's going to leave um, on Tuesday. He's going to stay in Bethany on Wednesday of the Passion Week. He's going to come back in on Thursday of the Passion Week. He's going to stay in Gethsemane Thursday night and be taken back in um, to be killed. These are his last words as a free man, as it were, leaving Jerusalem. And he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Everything he said in Luke 13, just a different time. But then he says, verse 39, For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you know any Jewish friends, neighbors, relatives, any, any Jewish people, I was privileged to be able to live in Israel for four months. Love the Jewish people. Absolutely, I love them. I have a heart for them. But if there's anything that Jesus could prophesy that seems absolutely unreasonable, it's this. You're telling me that Jewish people will come to a place at some point in history where they say Jesus is our Messiah? Uh, if, if you're a Jew, it's interesting because you can pretty much do whatever you want. Uh, you're known for what you are against. Uh, as a Jew, you are known for, I do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. It's the one major tenet. If you want to be a Jew, there's a lot of things that you can fudge with, but there's one thing you can't. If you want to be a Jew, you cannot believe Jesus is your Messiah. And yet Jesus says, different time, Luke 13, weeks before the Passion Week, and here, Tuesday of the Passion Week, I'm going to leave, and the next time I come back, all of my brethren, all of my Jewish people are going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this time they're going to mean it. This time they will look upon him whom they have pierced and see him as their salvation. And if you look around at our world, you would say, there's no way this is happening. No way. And yet we know Jesus saves. He does. He saves us. He's for us. He's with us. And he saves. He's going to bring it to pass. In the exact same way that he orchestrated the triumphal entry to happen, he is going to orchestrate, and I believe it's through the tribulation, he will orchestrate the saving of national Israel on a national level. And these words will come to pass. Jesus saves. God, I thank you so much for your kindness, even in this prophecy, that you are our great God who saves us, who loves us, who works for us. You are the God who can ordain and orchestrate and plan even your own triumphal entry. It wasn't a surprise to you. Nothing ever is. And you're the God who said, let light shine into darkness so that we would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and be saved. So God, we praise you. You are a great God. And we pray that you would occupy now our lowly, 
humble hearts, reign supreme, even as you do over all of creation and have authority over every speck in the galaxies. Reign over us supreme this day. We pray in your precious name. Amen.